Thank you, Steve. And uh, just before we start um, this message, there is a, a, a children's program uh, run by one of our young ladies here, and it's out in that room. So if you've got kids here, um, be assured they'll be well catered for in that um, side room, in just that one there. Okay, so please avail yourself of that. As I said before, and as we all know, it is a joy this morning to celebrate Kevin and Dawn's 60 years of marriage. And as family and friends, we congratulate them on achieving this memorable and significant point in their lives. I'm sure we all do that. Not many couples are able to celebrate this amount of time together. There are many reasons for that. Some of us will pass away before we get there, and some do. Many marriages sadly dissolve. And many of us here even are still trying to get there. <laughs> and it is a happy and a blessed occasion to celebrate and to be thankful to the Lord for. But what makes it more special for us all is that Kevin and Dawn still demonstrate joy and contentment in the many years that God has given them as a husband and wife team. And I'm sure you would all agree with that, for those who know Kevin and Dawn. Even though ill health often plagues them and they still radiate thankfulness and contentment and joy, there's not very... Many times you don't see a smile on Kevin and Dawn, uh, Dawn's face when you come to meet them. And might I say that's a rarity in many people today, especially after that amount of time together. <laughs> but not with Kevin and Dawn. They're a tremendous example for us both, family and friends. And um, on behalf of you all, I say thank you, Kevin and Dawn. And may God continue to bless the rest of your lives together. But this morning, I want us just to consider seriously for a little while and not to be taken up with the quantity of years, you get that, the quantity of years Kevin and Dawn have spent together, but I want you to be taken up more so with the quality of years that they have spent together. And uh, speaking on this to Kevin and Dawn just recently, they let me know, very quickly, or Dawn did anyway, with Kevin's loud amen behind her, that we've always had a third person in our marriage. And that third person being none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So their gratitude for the 60 years that they have spent together is to God, who has sent his son into their lives individually and in their marriage and they can avowedly declare and give testimony that he has never, ever let them down. Is that right, Kevin? Don't? Amen. And because of their testimony to the goodness and faithfulness of God, I want to share with you this morning on their behalf the way to have in the here and now and eternally truly contented and happy lives. And the answer of that 
is only found in the scriptures and the word of God that I'm going to part of the word of God that I'm going to be looking at today is in Psalm 1 okay so how to live happy and contented lives okay I'm trying to get a signal here I have turned it on oops there we are there we are. Now, I hope you can read that. I'm struggling on the back screen, so I'll read it off my notes here. But I just want you to follow along as I, as I read this Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm chapter 1. Many of us will know Psalm 23 off by heart, but not too many people know so well Psalm 1. And it's got some tremendous truth here that I'd like to share with you today. Most of us here this morning are past the fanciful fairy tales that end and they lived happily ever after. And the reason why most of us are past that is Because as we mature, the realities of life kick in and they soon prove that life is not a happy ever after scenario, is it, all the time? Rather, we find that life is interrupted with complexities, problems and difficulties and these issues soon diminish our dreams and a longing for peace and joy and happiness. All those things that we want seem to just slip out of our grasp time and time and time again as we go through life. But the amazing thing is, no matter who we are, no matter what color skin we are, no matter what ethnic group we come from, and we have a few different ethnic groups here from this morning, we are a people who are bent on finding or discovering and pursuing happiness in life. You'd have to agree with that, right? You ask almost any person what they want out of life, and they will reply, I want to be happy. You see, it's in our DNA, can I say, to be happy, and yet looking around society, we are not doing too well at it, folks. Of course, many of us go to all sorts of recipes to find this happiness that we really want. Some actually even try to find real happiness in love and marriage. But death and divorce soon cancel that out as a lasting happiness. Couples hope that having family will bring them happiness, but often our children cause more pain than pleasure. Others try to find happiness in careers or in recreational activities. Many try to deaden the pain with alcohol or drugs. Whatever the case, few would admit, very few would admit <laughs> 
that they have found lasting happiness. And even many Christians, sad to say, lack the true happiness that they are seeking. But Kevin and Dawn here this morning, I'll use them as an example, as I could use of many people here in our congregation this morning, they do not lack this true, contented, lasting happiness. Oh yes, they experienced, as all know Kevin and Dawn, they experienced pain. They experience and have experienced hurt. They've experienced disappointment. But like the Apostle Paul, this is what the Apostle Paul, Kevin and Dawn could say this, and I read this from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. Kevin and Dawn could say this, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal that would be Kevin and Dawn's and many of us here's testimony this morning in other words the secret of their happiness and joy is their hope and trust is not set on the temporary things around us or the temporary things of life, but on eternal things. So as we grapple with this quest for happiness and joy, what we need to do is to concentrate on the Word of God and what it says about this matter because the Word of God is what deals with eternal matters. And note the word blessed here. Blessed is the man. That word blessed is to enjoy and it's about well-being in every area of one's life. That's what it has in the idea. And so Psalm 1 clearly tells us that only a life built on God and obedience to his word will bring true happiness. That's what the psalm clearly declares if you just want it in a brief, very brief overview. And the first verse begins with blessed, a word that we probably don't use so much outside of church, but it certainly should be on the believer's tongue every day. This is a Hebrew word, and it is very intense, and it may be interpreted in in our vernacular language as something like this. Oh, how truly happy is the person. That's what we want, right? I want want it to be truly said, oh, how happy, truly happy is the person. And then the psalmist tells the reader how to get there, how to obtain this happiness. He does this by, by contrasting the way of the blessed man, the way of the truly happy person with the wicked man, the opposite. He begins by calling our attention to what the righteous and blessed person will not do. He starts off on the negative. And this is, because, this is very important because your happiness in the here and now and in eternity depends on your choice of one or two ways. And so also we will see from this text that choosing one way or walking one way, going one way, following one way will also mean rejecting the other. That's what it means here. And so the first important point to understand here is that true happiness is not 
found in a life that leaves God out. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You know, it's amazing how many people think that the opposite of this is true. And what they do is they try and find fulfillment by substituting God and his ways with whatever else takes their fancy. But nothing is due to God. And what he does here is he kindly informs us how this takes place in a person's life. How we can leave God out. And we see this on our first point. You leave God out by walking in the counsel of the wicked. There's the first negative statement. You know, when the text here speaks of the wicked, it means everyone who excludes the claims of God in their lives. The wicked are those who ignore his will and who do not take God seriously. It sounds pretty harsh, but don't shoot me. Hey, this is the word of God here, right? This is what it says. It's not so much about how bad and how many sins a person has committed, but more about who you are and your attitude toward God. To walk in the counsel of the wicked simply means choosing to go against or be indifferent about what God has said in his word. It means choosing to follow your own heart, your own ideas, your own dreams, to be self-pleasing rather than to be God-pleasing. That's what it means. It means choosing to follow after whatever our culture or our world dictates and puts to us rather than following what God has set down in his word. That's what it means. It means depending on self rather than God. That's what it means. It means denying God's word is totally sufficient to bring eternal joy and happiness in a person's life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. It means denying the need for our sin to be dealt with and refusing to see that our sin was laid on Jesus Christ where he paid the full penalty. That's what it means to be a wicked person. To walk in the counsel of the wicked is when we set ourselves up as being in total control of our destinies and that we do not need God. Yet, folks, the Bible humbles the pride of man and exalts the glory of God. The Scripture says in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord and that is my name and I will not give my glory to another. The world's wisdom builds up self and personal ego and it minimizes the need for absolute trust in God, whether for eternal salvation or for daily living. But there's more, but there's more. Listen, to walk in the counsel of the wicked also denies God's moral absolutes. And what it does, the world puts forward all sorts of substitutes all sorts of human ideas as substitutes to God's moral attributes. The wicked sees God's moral absolutes as too harsh, too idealistic. We see this happening today, and dare I say, even this redefining of marriage. Hey, that was God's idea, Genesis, early chapters of Genesis. And here we are, we think we know it all, and so we want to redefine marriage. And I'll say that quite openly. God's idea of marriage is between a man and a woman. 
And so the world dictates so much for us and so many people follow along and they are walking in the counsel of the wicked and that's who they are. Folks, a blessed and a happy man or a happy person, where it says, when it says man here, it's generic man or woman, is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But as well, we see that a blessed and happy man is one who does not stand in the path of sinners. Therefore, you leave God out by standing in the path of sinners. And here we have reference to one's behavior or conduct in life. To stand in the path of sinners means involvement with sinners in their sinful behavior, in their sinful lifestyle, in their conduct, in the things that they go in for. The word sinners, by the way, is a Hebrew word and it means miss the mark. It was an, used in archery when they pulled it back and he missed the bullseye. He missed the mark. The word was used, he sinned. And the word sinners is true of all of us in a spiritual sense. Because we have all, whether we like it or not, this is what God's word says, we have all missed the mark of the righteousness that God has said. God said that in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short or fallen short of God's standard. But when we trust in Jesus Christ, folks, as Savior and Lord, we become converted sinners. That's wonderful, isn't it? So everyone who is a Christian and a genuine believer, according to the Scriptures, we're converted sinners. No, no, we're not perfect. We're not any holier than thou. We're converted sinners, like heaven and dawn here, and many others. So instead of living to please ourselves, the converted sinner now lives and seeks to please God. Or as Colossians 1, chapter 10, verse 10 says this, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's a summary of the life of a believer, or it should be. This is what the Bible teaches, hence the Christian's goals, our objectives, and our, and our relationships with lost, unsaved people around us. It changes when we come to faith in Christ. So on the one hand, those who are genuine believers, we know that we are not to be deceived because bad company corrupts good morals. We have that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. And we acknowledge that and know that. We know the influence of bad company, etc., etc. In other words, if we run with worldly people in their godless ways, we will be wrongly influenced by them. And you know the idea of our, some of our young people, we even use the words, oh, well, they got them with the wrong crowd or the bad crowd or whatever, and it influences them. We know that. It happens all around, whether we're young or even whether we are old. And so this is why the new Christian needs to monitor carefully any close relationships with former unsaved friends. Because... They will draw you back into the old way of life. And you may think, no way, that will never happen to me. My Savior is King, He's Lord. Right, that will never happen to me. But the Scripture says here, what? Do not be deceived. But as we think of that, on the other hand, then on the other hand, although our relationships to unbelievers may change, that does not mean to say that we cut ourselves off from them completely. Rather, our objective in our relationship with them changes in that now we seek by God's grace to win these folks, these friends, these people 
to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Our relationship changes. It changes the objective. So here we have part of the secret already. How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners. But there is one more negative to avoid for a person to find true happiness. And you will see here that it's to leave God out by sitting in the seat of scoffers. Now we all know what a scoffer does. We may have done it ourselves from time to time. I know before I was converted I did. Even though I was brought up in a Christian home, I scoffed at the truth of God. So a scoffler simply rejects and rubbishes God's claims. Scoffers tend to take a high and mighty attitude in that they think they know more than God does, even though they might not say that in actual words. In other words, a scoffer, as in our text, casts off or ignores the word of God. They cast it off as being something that is repressive and only sees it as religious jargon that is all about knocking out any prospect of joy and pleasure that I have a right to delve into. So rather than submit to God's word, they follow their own lusts, their own intellect, as they do not want God to interfere with their lives. But folks, take note, take note here. God says that the godly and the truly happy person does not hang out in that company. They do not sit in the seat of scoffers. A 19th century preacher, one you will, many of you will know, know of well, C.H. Spurgeon rightly said, The seat of the scornful man may be very lofty, but it is very near to the gate of hell. And that was very true. And you'll know another saying too, birds of a feather flock together. And so often those who scoff at God just love to hang out together. Or at least they feel very uncomfortable in relationship and in close proximity to believers. And what God is saying is here, how truly happy or how truly happy is the person who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But before we leave verse 1, please notice the downward direction of people who leave God out of their lives. First, they walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Second, they stand in the path of sinners. And thirdly, they sit in the seat of the scoffers. So you have got walk, standing, and sitting. That's a progression, folks. That's a progression, and sad to say, it's a progression in a very wrong direction. So where do we go from here? It's a bit woeful to leave it there, right? The psalmist understands that knowing the negative is not enough and to learn the secret of being a truly and happy, blessed person. So he, he knows that we need to know that. And so he, now he launches into the positive to show what we also need to know. This comes to my second point here. True happiness is found in a life built on God and his word. But his delight, this is the truly happy person, the contented person, the believer in God, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. 
and whatever he does, he prospers. No doubt some can boast of living a good life and certainly not following the paths of the ungodly. Yeah, there are lots of good people. I know heaps of good people. I have friends who are good people, but they do, certainly do not delight in the Word of God and meditate on it continually. And so what we see here in verses 2 and 3 is both a commitment and a consequence to that commitment. In other words, those who are committed to the Word of God will be rewarded with favorable consequences. That's what these verses are saying here. Here's the positive side of it. Here's the secret, the way to find the true, happy contentedness that Dawn and Kevin have and it radiates from them. And so a good question to ask at this point would be, what does it mean to delight in God's Word? This is about commitment. What does it mean to delight in God's Word? You know, the word delight here is used in the Old Testament in Genesis 34 and verse 19 and again in Esther 2.14 in the context of a man delighting in a woman. Now I see some lights going on here. Okay? Of a man delighting in a woman. And let me tell you, all of a sudden when that happens... The young man's priority changes. Whatever he is doing, he changes in order to spend as much time with her as possible. Maybe you can resonate with this young man here today. Or some of us who are older can perhaps remember back when we first delighted in a woman. Everything changes. That's how it goes down. We want to spend time with her. And also, he doesn't change his priorities. He doesn't change what he's doing. He doesn't change his direction because he has to. That young man wants to. Nothing interferes with his time with the object of his delight. Now, let me ask you, do you delight in the Word of God in that sense? Do you take time, do you prioritize your time so that you spend time in the Word simply because you want to, because you delight in it. You love it. This is not about reading the Bible from time to time out of duty, folks. This is not about some religious idea that a chapter a day keeps the devil away kind of thing. This is all about delighting in the Word, reading and meditating on God's love letter to you. I don't want to embarrass my wife, but you know what? I'll let you in a secret. My wife wrote me 100 letters in our distance-challenged relationship 40, how many years ago? 43 years ago. We were 500 k's apart, and so no email those days. Letter writing was the deal. And so, yeah, it was challenged by distance. And so letter writing was the order of the day. You know, when I got those letters... I delighted in this young lady so much. I treasured those letters. I put them in my pocket. I was a hard worker. I was a shearer. I worked in the timber industry. And I'd have those letters and during my smoker breaks and during my lunch breaks, I'd pull those letters out and I'd read them, I'd reread them. I delighted in her and I delighted in her words to me. Folks, do you delight in the counsel of the loving, all-wise, heavenly Father as to how you should be 
living for Him, for your blessing and for His glory. Do you do that? You see, the way to true happiness is delight in God's Word. We are responsible not only to delight in God's Word, but we see here another word, to meditate on it day and night. What that day and night has the idea of wholeheartedly. It's not literally meaning that 24-7 we're to be reading in the Word. That's impossible, that's illogical, that's ridiculous. And so it has the idea of wholeheartedly. To meditate means to, to think about the Word of God, what it says, and how it applies to my life, and how it speaks into my life. You know, meditation is not here about some Eastern mystic thing that where you sit up on a hill and go hum for a half an hour. It's not nothing to do with that. Okay, meditation here is simply has the idea of a cow. You know, a cow chews the cud; it takes in grass. I know a lot about cows because I was a dairy farmer for many years. And if you saw a cow chewing its cud, it was a healthy cow. So it chewed in grass, and it sort of regurgitated and chewed it over and over again, and then it swallowed it and regurgitated. It may sound horrible, but that's the healthy workings of a cow. And we have the idea here of meditation, where to read the Word of God, where to think about it, where to regurgitate it. How does that apply to me? What does it mean? And where to look into it, where to delight in it and meditate upon it. A happy person is one who delights in the Word and considers carefully what it says so much, so much so that it shapes and begins to determine what our life is to be and the way we should live. In other words, delighting and meditating on the Word of God will reap its consequences. Is that how it is with you folks? Let's have a look at the consequence. Oops. There we are, consequence. A rewarding and prosperous life. We see this in verse 3. The psalmist uses here another analogy to describe the person who delights in the God's word and he says a person who delights in God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water in other words like a tree that flourishes why is it flourishing you know you often I love going out in the in the outbacks and and you look way in the distance and you see a line of gum trees you'll know ah there's a stream there there's a stream there trees flourish with this water and so here's the analogy that's used and so it has its roots deep down into the soil and that tree never runs dry. And so is the person. So is the person who delights and meditates on the Word of God. That person, in whatever he or she does, they will prosper. This is the man or woman who is blessed and rewarded with true happiness and contentment in this life and in the life to come. No matter what the external circumstances, no matter what happens here and now, whether it be ill health, financial loss, death of a loved one, like a tree that stands firm and is fruitful, no matter what the external forces that hit, they will prosper. Now, don't get carried away because this is not about financial prosperity. We don't preach that here. The Bible doesn't teach that. God never promises financial prosperity like I might say, sad to say, some charlatan preachers suggest in this day and age. The psalmist is speaking here of the prosperity of the soul. Prosperity 
and reward of a contented and a satisfied heart no matter what the circumstances. Folks, ask yourself this. Do I have that satisfaction and prosperity of soul? Do I have the contentedness of soul that is a rewarding consequence of delighting and meditating on the Word of God? Or are you content for the moment and leaving God out of your life and are satisfied with the temporary happiness that it does bring? And might I say, life without God, there are moments of, can be moments of temporary happiness. The Bible even speaks of the pleasures of sin. So sin is pleasurable and it can be pleasurable to the, to the flesh, to the self. But the Bible goes on to say the pleasures of sin only last for a season. It's not ongoing and eternal. As a matter of fact, some might even say, I'm doing fine, thanks very much, without God. I don't need God. I, I, I know many good people who are in this position. But let me say this, true happiness of heart and soul and mind is not gained until we include something else, the prospects of eternity. This is why the, farm, this is why the, farmer, the psalmist goes on to say in verses 4 to 6, true happiness is found... Okay. Yeah, true happiness is found in life when eternity is truly measured. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. A pretty sombering couple of verses. But we need to deal with them because we need to honor the word of the Lord. Many people don't want to go here, actually. If we get into this topic, people feel uncomfortable. It's too confronting. But the psalmist spells it out clearly for the reader. He contrasts the only kind of people there really are, the wicked on one side, the righteous on the other. The righteous is like a sturdy tree, firmly rooted and fruitful. The wicked are like what? They are like chaff. The wicked is like chaff. Chaff is from wheat. It's, it's rubbish that's left over. The wood wheat is taken out and the chaff, the husks, is just blown away with the wind. That's the idea. And might I say, this is very different. Very different from our view of people, right? We kind of don't tend to view people like that. And that's okay. That's, that's good. We know and hear of people who leave God out of their lives as, as being successful and glamorous and wealthy and exciting and influential. We all know of people. If not, uh, we may be even people like that ourselves. But that's not how, not how God sees people. And that's what really matters. How does God see us? Because God sees us as verse 6 shows. God, God views, he takes eternity into, into account. He says, those who leave me out of their lives are like chaff. They have no substance. They may be great before men and before the world and before their societies, but before me they will be blown away like chaff in the final judgment. 
The wicked will not stand in the judgment, verse 5 tells us. They are dead men walking. In other words, their case won't hold up in God's court when they stand before him because every man will stand and need to have to stand before God. We've got no, there's not, that's not an optional thing. That's just going to happen. Heaven will never be their eternal home. Their case won't stand up. They will never make it. Whereas those in the assembly of the righteous, those who have been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, will be assembled for eternity to be with the Lord. You see, the way of the righteous is vitally important to be on, folks. I do trust we all consider this seriously because we need to know that way. Because that is the only way that leads to an eternity in heaven. That is the only way that leads to contentedness and blessedness. This will never be the way of the wicked, for they will perish, for God has said that in Hebrews 9.27. Jesus said in John 14 and 6 also, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no person comes to the Father except through me. Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. So every one of us, folks, whether we like it or not, will stand before God. And if you take eternity out of the picture in the here and now, really you must only consider yourself as a mere accident or a a mere something of random chance. If you take eternity out of your worldview... Your life can only be some accident that is suspended between two other accidents, your birth and your death. If you take eternity out of the equation or out of your worldview. And dare I say, there cannot ever be any happiness in that view. Why? Because God has set God has set eternity on our hearts and it's to our peril if we thrust it out, ignore it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3.11 tells us that. He set eternity in our hearts. He has given us this unquenchable quest to pursue true happiness which involves an eternal perspective. But true happiness can only be found by God's grace in Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone. I really want you to know that. So the secret to Kevin and Dawn's happiness their prosperity of soul, no matter what the circumstance, centers on the third person in their marriage, and that is centers on their faith in Jesus Christ, who has saved them, who has forgiven their sins, and has promised them an eternal heavenly home with him. My dear folks here today, every one of you, please consider the eternal consequences of the way you are walking, standing, and sitting. God could rightfully judge you for rebellion. He could rightfully do that here and now. But because of his love and his mercy, he has sent Jesus Christ to die in your place and my place on the cross. And it's your responsibility to obey and to turn from your rebellion and to trust in him and to accept the pardon 
accept the price that he has paid and that he offers to cleanse you from sin forever. And if you'll do that, then you'll build your life on God and his word. You will, will live, dare I say it, you will live happily ever after and throughout all eternity. And folks, that's not a fairy tale. May God bless his word to each of us this morning. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I just do thank you this morning for this wonderful occasion, just to have the privilege of opening your word. And, and I just thank you for each and every person here this morning. Lord, impress upon each soul the need to be on the right way the way of the blessed person. And so, Lord, these are not my words, as you know. They're not our words. They're your words. And so, Father, help us to understand that we need to consider seriously the opportunity you have given each and every one here this morning to be on the right way, to come through faith. So, Father, we thank you for Kevin and Dawn's example again. And we commit each one another to you and especially Kevin and Dawn, as we continue to celebrate their 60 years of marriage together. We give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the people of God said, Amen.